Okay, please stand for the scripture reading. Okay, John 18, 1 through 11. After saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples and entered a grove of olive trees. Judas, the betrayer, knew this place because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. The leading priests and Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. Now with blazing torches, lanterns, weapons, and they arrived at the olive grove. Jesus fully realized all this was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for, he asked. Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Judas, the betrayed, Jesus who betrayed him, was standing with them, and as Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and fell to the ground. Once more he asked them, who are you looking for? Again, they replied, Jesus the Nazarene, I told you that I am he, he, Jesus said, and since I am the one you want, let these others go. He did this to fulfill his own statement, I did not lose a single one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. But Jesus Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back in his sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given me? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, you can be seated and we'll dismiss our school age kids. Are they following you? <clears throat> school age kids to the back. And while they're doing that, if you haven't already, um, would you open your Bibles with me to uh, the scripture that Miss Kendall just read and John chapter 18. As you know, we've been walking through the Gospel of John uh, for a little over a year now, and it looks like we're probably going to finish it in the next uh, uh, two or three weeks. And um, it's been incredible. We spent several weeks in John 17 in the high priestly prayer, and uh, we continue to talk about prayer today. It's hard to understand uh, Jesus' prayer in John 17 as he prayed to the Father and he prayed for his followers and he prayed for us in this very room who would come to believe and then he moves into a different kind of prayer I told you a couple weeks ago in Ephesians 6 18 uh, Paul to the Ephesian church says that we should pray uh, at all times with all kinds of prayers and that's certainly what you're going to get a small picture of even today praying at all times with all kinds of prayers But as I began to study uh, this, even this week, I learned something new. I had assumed, I don't know how in my own mind, but I had assumed that it it ended a little more uh, Hollywood-esque, if it makes sense. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, the movie uh, Armageddon. It's been uh, a a long, long, long time. But I remember sitting in my uh, college dorm by myself watching Armageddon shedding a few tears um there's this like glorious scene right where Bruce Willis's character is like I don't know he's like I think it's been decades since I've seen it or more he's he's talking back to his daughter uh and you know he's gonna die uh to save the world like that that scene right and you almost think that uh that these two passages so that so that the Bible could be a little more Hollywood-esque would, would, would switch places that he would he would do this prayer of agony and then he would say this beautiful prayer in John 17 um, and then to the cross but it doesn't happen that way Uh, Jesus and his disciples in John 14 um, had left the upper room and they were making their way towards the Mount of Olives uh, or the inside the Mount of Olives was this little private garden the Garden of Gethsemane and uh, it's where 
John tells us it's where Jesus often went. Maybe a rich benefactor had lended this part of the garden to them. It's where they had stayed many nights. And they're headed that direction, and they likely passed a vineyard, and that's when Jesus started uh, talking to them about the vine and the branches and, and recorded for us in John 15. And then the, the rest of John 15 and 16, he's instructing the disciples as they're walking through the dark streets of Jerusalem. And then we come to chapter 17, and Jesus continues to speak to his disciples, preparing them for the future, assuring them of his provision and somewhere along the way, he went from teaching them to praying. You, you ever had that, uh, you, ever, you ever get caught in the middle of a conversation, somebody elbows you, like, shh, we're praying, man, we're praying. I feel like that's kind of what's going on. You know, the, Peter and John are elbowing each other, like, man, the Lord's praying. And this beautiful prayer in John 17, and we've talked about it uh, again for a few weeks. And if you haven't read it, I, I encourage you to read it. It's such a beautiful prayer. And then in verse 1, they crossed the brook Kidron, this small stream that drained from the Temple Mount. And uh, remember, this is, uh, Pente- uh, this is Pentecost, and so they're, this is the Passover, and so they're, uh, they're bringing their lambs for sacrifice. And this, this little stream would have been filled with blood from the thousands of Passover lambs that had been sacrificed. And I I think this was the vivid reminder to Jesus that he soon would be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. And and, and I think that's what sets the scene in John 18. And we're going to get through the passage, but just real quickly, if you would flip your Bibles over to Luke 22, Luke's account and Matthew's account give us a little bit more information as to what's actually going on in the actual prayer. John just says he's there and he's praying, and then John just gets right to the point of of what happens. But Luke gives us a little context of what's actually being prayed. It says that Jesus went a stone's throw away from his disciples. Um... In chapter 22, Luke 22, verse 39, and he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. This is an olive grove, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you might enter, you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him and being in agony he prayed more earnestly and sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground and he arose from prayer and he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping for sorrow and he said to them why are you sleeping rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation And while he was still speaking, there came a crowd. The one called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He walked up to Jesus and kissed him. So we see this this prayer is not like John 17 prayer. This is not this beautiful, poem-like kind of prayer. This is one of those prayers that maybe you've prayed. These are the kind of prayers you pray in a hospital. These are the kind of uh, guttural noises that you make 
um, when we've got no time for, for pleasantries. When, 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 when it is dire, when the situation is so heavy, sometimes, I don't know if you've ever been there, you've, you've been in a situation so difficult and maybe so dark that you, you didn't even have words to pray. You just kind of just tried to pray. And all that came were tears or frustration. And this is, this is what Hebrews says. This is how Jesus prayed. He, he, he did pray like this. He prayed through tears and, and cries. And sometimes the, the agony of it, this is the kind of prayer that Jesus is praying. And it tells us that he's sweating, and his sweats are like great drops of blood. He's not standing, looking into heaven, this beautiful prayer. He's breaking the bread, fixing to feed the 5,000. He's kneeling, perhaps lying prostrate on the ground. His anguish is so great. Luke's passage says that an angel of the Lord had to be sent to him to, to help sustain him in his praying. One of the other synoptic gospels tell us exactly the positioning that Jesus had brought the disciples here and then he'd gone a little bit away from the 12 but brought Peter, James, and John with him, and then he went a little further than even them. And it kind of gives us an indication that the disciples probably didn't hear Jesus at the time. If they had, how could they be sleeping? Would they have seen the angel that come to minister to Jesus? It, it seems as <clears throat> as though this was a very private prayer, one known only to the disciples after the Lord's death and resurrection, as the Spirit revealed it to them. And I te it teaches us a couple things about life and prayer. Teaches us a few things about a praying life. One, it is okay not to be okay. Not everything in life is skittles and rainbows. Not everything is highbrow and polished. Not everything fits into these little tidy boxes of faith that we stack upon each other. Sometimes life is really hard. I mean, really hard. And we do ourselves a disservice to not give a place in our life for the really hard things. For praying, letting our, our heart really be known. I grew up and have served in a lot of church communities that putting on your Sunday best, like Jason's shirt this morning, I like your Sunday best, meant more than just your clothing. It meant the persona, the smile that you put on your face as you greeted everybody as brother or sister as you, come, as you came in, including the fake smile, the, the fake it till you make it kind of attitude. But Jesus didn't live like that. He wasn't trying to impress one person on this night, nor any other day or night of his entire life. His concern was not about impressing other people. He was so real and authentic, and I love that about the person of Jesus. Hebrews would tell us that Jesus is our sympathetic high priest, that he's able to identify with everything that we walk through. We live in a sin-wrecked world with patterns of sin in our own lives, with the enemy in our souls, even right now as we're talking and listening, strategizing and how to destroy and to divide and to discredit us. And it's the very sin in our lives that Jesus, in this moment in the garden, came to deal with. 
This is what he's talking about in verse uh, 42 in, in, in Luke's account. Father, if you're willing, he says, remove this cup from me. The cup is the cup of God's wrath toward sin. And it was something that all Jewish people had understood for a very long time. Jesus knew what the Father's will was, yet he was in great agony of soul. As Jonathan Edwards would call it, the dark night of the soul. And this agony didn't come from any lack of desire to do the will of God. But because Jesus would go to the cross to be a sacrifice, he himself a sacrifice for our sins. He wasn't a victim of circumstances beyond his control. And unlike any animal sacrifice that had ever been sacrificed, he went with full knowledge, willingly resolved to lay his life down. And it helps us understand why Jesus used this figure of a cup. Repeatedly in the Old Testament, the cup is this powerful picture of the wrath of God, of God's judgment stored up for us. In Psalms 75 verse 8, it says, For in the hand of the Lord there's a cup, and the wine is red, and it's fully mixed. And he pours it out, surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. The cup didn't represent death itself, it represented judgment. It represented the wrath of God being poured back on us. Every sin that we had ever committed. Every sin that we would commit of all the saints of all time being stored up in this big bowl of wrath, a holy God not being able to interact with sin. And when we sinned against God, the wrath of God was stored up in this bowl or in this cup as Jesus would talk about it. It was this cup of wrath or this cup of judgment. And Jesus in this moment is not afraid of death. The cup, again, is not about death, it's about judgment. The author of life and death is not afraid afraid of death. There was something more powerful happening in this moment. Jesus is about to become the enemy of God who would be judged, who would drink the cup of the Father's fury so we would not have to drink from that cup. This figurative cup was the source of Jesus' greatest agony in this moment and the moments that he would hang on the cross. And here he's praying, hey, Dad, I know the plan. I know I'm here to deal with the sin of humanity, but if there's any other way that that we don't have to drink from, from that cup, your sin and my sin, the sins of commission, all those that we've actively, willfully done against the Father, all of those sins, all the sins of omission, all the right things we should have been doing but we weren't doing, All of that. All the fury of hell itself, every secret thing, every dark thing, every hidden thing. All the sins of all the saints, past, present, and future in that cup. What a horrid, most bitter thing. I don't think we can come up with words in the English language to describe this moment. And people say, but I thought God was a God of love. He is, friend. But, but God can't rightly love us without first rightly judging our sin. God is love, but through sin, he is stirred to wrath. He is love, but he is stirred to wrath, Scripture tells us. So this is why Jesus is praying such an agonizing prayer as he's about to take 
the penalty and the wrath of God stirred up by our sin upon him so that we could be given the righteousness of God. But look at this prayer again. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I love this quote. We shared it, I think, on uh, our Facebook this, this week, the church did, by Priscilla Shirer. You can ask God questions without questioning God. And that's, this is exactly what Jesus is doing. Hey, Dad, is, is there any other way? But you know what? Not my will, but yours be done. That's, that's how we approach him in prayer. God, is there any other way? You ever prayed multiple times? God, are, are you sure? Am I missing something? Can't you just smite my boss and solve my problems? This cancer thing? My daughter, my son, my job? God, is, is there any other way? And we can certainly ask that, and we can ask it with boldness on repeat. But this is ultimately a prayer of surrender. Nevertheless, God, not my will, but yours. Isn't this how Jesus taught us to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Such a powerful statement, such a beautiful posture of surrender. Not my will, but yours. Now, most of us don't pray that way. We pray not your will, but mine. As a matter of fact, most of us are so opposed to anything against our will, we choose our friends, not the friends who will tell us the truth, but the ones who will tell us what we want to hear. We watch the shows and the news channels and our phone algorithm is specifically designed to tell us more of what we want to hear. But Jesus doesn't have that posture. It reminds me of Psalms 115. You know that Psalms, right? Not to us, O Lord. Not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. We should put that prayer on repeat every time we get out of the car. Every time we wake up, not to us, O oh Lord, not to us. But to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. So John doesn't show us any of that. Luke, Luke tells us that, and the others even contain some more. But flip back to John, and let's, let's see what he says right here. Let's pick up in verse 2. He had crossed the... Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and the disciples entered now Judas who betrayed Jesus also knew the place for Jesus met there with his disciples often so Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers other passages, uh, it still says there's at least 500 there. This was no small group. And the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Who do you seek? 
And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, some of you may have picked up on this if you've been with us through through the, through the whole Gospel of John. This is the 10th time that Jesus uses this I am statement. And if you read it in the Greek, he doesn't say I am he. The translators put that to there, there for us so it would make more, more contextual sense. But Jesus literally uses the same word again, the ego I me, the, the I am. It's the same word again that God used in the Old Testament when, when God was speaking to Moses in the burning bush. You remember that whole thing? And he's about to go to, to Egypt and he's talking... And right before he leaves, he says, uh, well, God, um, this is all kind of bizarre and crazy. Who do I tell them you are? And God uses that word. Translated here, I am. I am that I am. It's hard to, hard to really translate in English. It's Yahweh. Meant to mimic the very sound of our breath. Breathing in, Yahweh. Yahweh. And when Jesus uses that one word, I, those two words, I am, ego, I, me. You see, you see what happens to the people there? They all got forced to the ground. Here the creator of the world in human form let out a little beam of his majesty, of his deity, and 500 of Rome's <clears throat> most powerful men fell to the ground. And it reminds us, and it certainly reminded them, that Jesus was in complete control of this moment. As a practical matter, Jesus didn't have to go with any arresting army led by Judas. With God's power expressed through his words alone, Jesus could have overpowered them and easily escaped. It reminds me of the very end. If you read how this whole thing ends in the book of Revelation, will all the armies of God mount all their nuclear weapons against God remember Jesus coming down on the white horse with the church behind him and it's just cool it's like uh, it's like Rambo meets Narnia right he's on this white horse and the swords and tattoos and like oh this is about to go down and there's no fighting Jesus opens his mouth and all that oppose him are slain Jesus letting out a little bit of that deity right here. Just Whom do you seek? I am. And the baddest, meanest, most well-trained of all that Rome had to offer gets knocked back like a Jedi trick or something, right? They just fall to the ground. Our Lord chose to give these soldiers the proof of his infinite power that they might know that their power could not prevail against him if he choose to, chose to ex- exert his might. Seeing that the very breath of his mouth confounded, drove back, and struck them down. It was with that very breath that he opened his mouth in heaven and created all that was to be created. Colossians tells us that he spoke everything into existence by the word of his power. That's, they get a little glimpse of that power in that moment. 
And friends, I, I want to make this point clear that Jesus was not some good prophet that come to give us advice. He was the all-powerful son of God who came to deal with our sin, to reconcile us back to God. Scripture tells us that every knee will bow to King Jesus, either in this life or in eternity, every knee. And when you bow the knee is what makes all the difference. In this life, you bow the knee to admit that you're a sinner in need of a great Savior and Lord. You trade in your sin for his righteousness and you get bestowed upon you grace and mercy and adoption into his family. Heirs to the throne room, life together with Jesus now and promised in eternity. That's what you get. Or if you choose to live for yourself in this life, to refuse the lordship of Jesus here, then in the future, after this life, you're going to be forced to bow the knee. But then you don't get the grace and the mercy. You spend eternity separated from Jesus in a place that Jesus himself called hell. It's the timing that makes all the difference. Verse 7, so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I'm he. (laughs) So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. What about, what about Judas? We're going we're to get to him in a second. Then Simon Peter, verse 10, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What an incredible moment. Can you imagine being there to see that? We find out in the other Gospels that Jesus puts the ear back on him. But I, I don't think Peter was going for the cut off the ear move. That's, that's not a move. That you, there's not a cut off the ear move in Mortal Kombat on the video game. No, it's, it's just finish him, right? This is, and this is what Peter's thinking. I'm about to finish this dude. And notice also that he didn't, he didn't go after like the big bad Roman army. No, he went after the servant of the high priest who's probably just standing there like, oh man, this is, this is terrible. I should be sleeping right now or watching the voice at home. This is, what am I here for? Somehow this guy still proceeds to arrest Jesus. I think if it was me and I just got my ear chopped off and then put back on, I'd be like, hey guys, I'm switching teams. I'm, um, you know what, y'all do your thing. I'm going to go over to Team Jesus here because, uh, uh, that, was, that was pretty crazy. Jesus, you got space for me? I don't know if Peter's trying to overcompensate for the fact that Jesus had already told him that he'd betray him. Can you imagine the look on Jesus' face as he stares at Peter, I think, grabs the ear and puts it back on Malchus. Early church history tells us that Malchus becomes part of the early church, one of the early church leaders. Every time I read this about Peter, I just shake my head like, Peter, man, you don't get it. And then I think I'm so much like him. You ever try to accomplish God's will your way? 
Jesus had said the kingdom was going to come. It didn't look like God's kingdom was coming. And so he takes, he takes it into his own hands. God's will, my way. You know, you receive the promise of God, but it's not working the way you wanted, not the timing you wanted. You think God's done falling asleep at the will, and so you, so you say, you know, God, I'm going to help you a little bit. We're going to get this thing going. And the Bible's full of, like, uh, terrible examples when people tried that. Remember Abraham and Sarah? They couldn't have a baby. God promised them a baby. They couldn't have a baby. They're already getting old. They're like, man, God must not know what he's talking about. And so Sarah comes up with this incredible idea. Abraham, since, since I can't have a baby, why don't, why don't you... Um, won't you have relations with my, with, with, with my servant? And maybe, maybe God's promise will be accomplished through that means. And God the whole time is like, oh, man, no, no. And they do it, and it's led to basically all, all the turmoil in the Middle East right now. Or Moses. No, he had a special call in his life, but didn't want to wait on God. Didn't want to wait on God. It looked like the Egyptians were winning. And so what did he do? He goes and kills an Egyptian. Moses keeps doing this. He just does it again and again and again. He strikes the rock instead of speaking to it. He's always giving the people back to God like, God, these are your people. I was just happy being a little shepherd in the desert when you came and got me. And then Jonah, he thought he could just run away from God like, oh, God, eh, I don't like those people. I'm going to go the opposite direction. That worked out well for him, didn't it? And then David decided to hang out on a rooftop when he should have been at war. Remember that? That didn't, that, didn't end, that didn't end good. And on and on we could go where God's people didn't think God was moving fast enough or even in the right direction. So they decided to take, now we're going to help God out a little bit and do this. Friends, can I remind you that God's promises are true? Even when you can't see it, even when you can't feel it, his timing is perfect, his will is secure, you can trust him. I've talked to you through the different stages of faith before. It's been a year, we won't get back into that, but there's a whole lot of time between the promise and deliverance often. There's a lot of difficulty and delay and dead end. But that doesn't change anything about the security of God's promise. He is still sure and steady and will certainly bring about what he's promised in his timing. The question is, friends, will we trust him while we wait? Will we worship while we wait? For the child of God, his promises are yes and amen. You may feel abandoned, but in Christ you're loved. You may feel condemned, but in Christ you're spotless and above reproach. You may feel uh, down on your luck, but in Christ you're blessed. I love, you're blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, Ephesians tells us. You may feel neglected by others, but in Christ you've been chosen by God. You may feel defeated by temptation, but in Christ you've died to sin's power, and Christ now lives in you. You may feel dead and lifeless, but in Christ you have resurrection life coursing through your veins. You may feel like you aren't making much of a difference, but in Christ you are raised with Jesus and seated in heavenly places, and he has blessed you to be a blessing. You may feel broken and washed up, but in Christ you've been made complete. You're a new creation, friends, adopted into his family, a partaker of his divine nature. Peter just didn't get it, but I said this a couple of weeks ago. We, we're a little hard on Peter, aren't we? 
Let me end this way. I, I don't want to miss the forest for the trees here. If you're just reading through the Gospels and you come to this place, it's really astonishing that one of the 12, handpicked by Jesus, becomes the betrayer of Jesus himself. For 30 pieces of silver, he betrays Jesus. He goes to a field, he hangs himself, and he goes to hell. Peter, on the other hand, is so flustered by these events that he would deny Jesus three times, go back to fishing, be restored by Jesus, come back and preach the sermon of his life in Acts where 3,000 people are saved. The question is, what's the difference? Can I just be honest? This scares me to death as a pastor. Because I love you guys. I do. You are some of the best people in the world. You meet any need that's put in front of you. You give to any need. Even though we talk about we're, we're adopting kids and we're, we're, we're adopting lost people groups and we're sending missionaries and you're in discipleship groups and missional communities and we're doing so, and we're feeding the hub. Yet scripture says you can be really close to Jesus and never know him. The problem with this passage and with the church today is that up to this point, you can't tell much different between Peter and Judas. As a matter of fact, up to now, if I told you that one of the disciples would reject and betray Jesus, you would have probably thought it was Peter. Even now, you know, Peter cutting off the guy. Peter's, Peter does not get it. Always saying the dumb stuff before he thinks. Remember the time when he corrected Jesus? When Jesus says, hey, this is how it's going to happen? And Peter's like, Jesus Christ, step into my office. No, that's not how it's going to happen. And you remember how Jesus responds? I wish he would have done with those Jedi moves and like threw him on the ground. But he calls him Satan. Now listen, a, bad, a lot of bad things may happen in your childhood. and You're going to have to go to counseling for it for a long time of your life. But when Jesus Christ calls you Satan... That Peter's going to have a lot of counseling going on in his life for a long time. Or that time on the Mount of Transfiguration where he just keeps talking. <laughs> you remember that time he takes him up there and Elijah shows up and the glory of the Lord. And Peter just he keeps talking. It, one of the texts actually it shows us that like God had to interrupt Peter, God the Father. Like, um, this is my son. Or this very night he chops the guy's ear off. Or after this he's going to reject Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. And the third time he actually cusses at the lady who seems to recognize. Like, I know you're the one, you're the one. And he starts bleepity bleep bleep. And we're not going to say those things. But I don't know what, I don't know what got it. But at the end of it, Peter has a genuine heart of faith. Judas up to now has done all the right things. He was part of all the miracles. Can you imagine him being the one seeing the fish and the loaves multiplied? Incredible. And he's thinking, man, this is a good financial plan. You know, he's the finance guy. He's like, if you can just multiply all the things. He saw Lazarus come back to life, hugged Lazarus's neck, I'm sure, after Lazarus had been dead. 
Or remember when the lady came and dumped the expensive perfume on Jesus' feet? Judas is the one that speaks up. And you know what he says? He said, man, that was worth a lot. We could have fed a lot of homeless people with that money. And at that point, every pastor search committee would have elected him pastor right there. Like, oh, I like, I like Judas. I like, his, I, like his, I like the way he thinks. And on and on we could go. But on the night that Jesus was arrested, Judas betrays Jesus, and Peter stands by his side. And you know what the difference is? The difference is one knows Jesus and one doesn't. One knows Jesus and one just knows about Jesus. Judas was close. Knows about him, knows his people, had seen the miracles, had even played sleepover with Jesus about a thousand times, practically in the same garden. But in the end, he doesn't know Jesus as his Lord. He wants the benefits, but not the lordship. Now listen, friend, and I'm speaking to us, and this is a hard text, and I don't necessarily love preaching hard sermons. Like, let's go back to the Psalms 23, the Lord is my shepherd. But this is a warning for us. And here's what the warning is, friends. We can play church a long time and spend eternity separated from Jesus in hell. We play church a long time. My question to you this morning is, do you know him? Not about him, not his people, not even just the things he said. Do you know him as Lord and Savior of your life? I'm not asking you if you're perfect. No one is perfect. I'm not even asking you if you're mature. No one in this room is completely mature. We're all maturing, I hope. I'm not asking if you do all the right things. I'm asking, do you know Jesus? The most chilling passage to me as a pastor is in Matthew 7. I don't think I have this on the screen. Let me just read it to you. Matthew 7, verse 21. Man. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, talking about the judgment day, where we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, this is their resume, their spiritual resume. It's pretty good. Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do mighty works in your name? That's a pretty good spiritual resume. Be like someone even in our gathering say, Lord, Lord, didn't we feed the homeless every Sunday night? Didn't we give gobs of money to your work through the church? Didn't we show up when people needed us? Didn't we, didn't we teach an equipping class? Didn't we do all the things? And Jesus looking at us and saying, sorry. I, I never knew you. And he declared to them in verse 23 of Matthew 7, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Then he goes on and says, Build your house on the rock. 
Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them are going to be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, but it didn't fall because it had been founded on the, on the rock, the identity, our identity in Christ. But everyone who hears these words and does not do them be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And before the rain came, the houses looked identical. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. It's not about how well you perform in front of others. It's about your heart, friend. Do you, do you really know Jesus as Lord and Savior? This is not a scare tactic. It's not a guilt trip. We're not going to play any funeral music in a minute and just give you this like emotional response this is just a question for me really from God's word to you do you really know Jesus because the difference between Judas and Peter you know what the difference was was a heart of surrender that's the difference they both acted about the same way they both were close to Jesus for a long time they both knew all the things Peter's rejoicing in heaven right now with Jesus can't wait to talk to him one day. Judas separated from Jesus for all of eternity. And the difference is surrender. See, you know a lot about a person when you're around them when they don't get what they want. Jesus tells this story. You, you probably know this. and I don't know if I have time for this. Jesus tells this story in Luke 15. If you've been here very long, you've heard this story a, a thousand times. Just the most, it's a, man, I love to preach the passage of Luke, the, the prodigal son. You know the prodigal son. Luke 15 is the, the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost son. And prodigal just means, means lavish. And Tim Keller helped me know that the prodigal son is not the one that ran away. Prodigal just means lavish. And it's really the prodigal God, right? Because he had such a lavish heart to pour out his grace and mercy on both his sons. But if you remember the story, the, 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 the younger son comes up and uh, demands his inheritance. You remember that? And the father, which is how I know it's the Bible and, and, not, and not, you know, real world here. Because if I would have demanded from my father my inheritance before he had passed, that story wouldn't have gone that way. Um, it may have, may have gone very different than that. But this is what happens here. And the father just gives it to him and the son goes away and he spends lavish living. He just, he just wastes it. He just has a great time for a long time. And he ends up in a pigsty, as it were, which were certainly unholy and offensive. You couldn't even touch pigs or anything that came to pigs. You were a good Jew. So he's covered in pig filth, and it says that he comes to his senses, and he says, you know what, my, even the servants back at home have it better than, better than I got it right now. I'm just going to go, and maybe I can be one of my dad's servants. And comes up with the whole spill, and he goes back home, and his dad's eagerly awaiting him. I love this picture. It's just God just eagerly awaiting us to return home. He's just eagerly awaiting, and he's waiting, and he's thinking, man, they're going to come, and The son turns the corner and the father runs, which also would have been just so out of bounds for a good Jewish man. They were wearing the big dresses. They got to hike those things up and show some man thigh and start, you know, which is never a good thing. Um, and start running and he meets his son and he embraces his son. He puts his robe on him and his ring on his finger. And he said, let's kill the fatted calf for tonight. We're going to celebrate for my son was lost and now he's come home. And we see the lavish heart of the father. And it's a beautiful picture. But that whole story had nothing to really to do with the, with the son. If you remember back in the beginning of Luke 15, 
the Pharisees and, and scribes are so mad at Jesus because they said that he hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. So he wasn't even talking to them about the, about the younger son. He was talking to them about the older son. If you remember the story, they're getting ready for the party, but the older son, the, the self-righteous son who had done all the right things to please his dad, dad realizes his older son's not even there. Goes outside the house to engage with the son. He says, son, come back in, man. Your, your, your lost brother, your younger brother's gone away and he's come home. We're, we're throwing a party. But he didn't want to rejoice in that. The older brother didn't. You know, he starts saying all these things. Well, my younger son, my younger brother, he's the one who left and went and spent all his money on prostitutes. The text doesn't say that. He's just adding things to what his brother's done. And you hadn't even given me a goat, which is, yeah, I guess, you know, worth a lot. You hadn't even given me a pair of Jordans. Maybe that's in today's term. And this is how, friends, this is how we know if we're the self-righteous, if we're the Judas and not the Peter. Because we think when we do the right things, then God owes us. God, I've been living my life right. You better heal me. God, I've been doing all the right things. You, you better give me my job back. God, if you, if you really love me, then, then, then we... We set the standard. God, if you really love me, then do this. If you really love me, then do this. And that is not the heart of the Father at all. And the older brother missed out. Because he was doing all the things to earn dad's favor. Instead of doing all the things out of the identity as a loved son. And here again, the difference between Judas and Peter is a heart of surrender. Friends, I don't know where you fall on this, but we're going to give you some time just to examine your own heart. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to even take communion in a little bit. Such this beautiful reminder of our identity in Christ and how he loved us not because of anything we did scripture says while we were still sinners Christ died for us so when we gather together we take communion and this is not for everybody in the room but it's for all of those that consider Jesus as Lord and Savior of their lives so you come when you're ready I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray my encouragement today is to get on the right side of this. If you've just been playing religious games and doing the religious things, but you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, man, today would be a great day of salvation. As, as a matter of fact, that the same thing in Luke 15, every one of those stories ended with a party. The lost coin was found and the lady throws a party. And the lost sheep was found by the shepherd, and they throw a party. As a matter of fact, it says that all of heaven rejoiced. This is just not one of our little parties. This is a heavenly party. Can you imagine all the angels, even this morning, peering over the edge of heaven, looking at us, and they love the worship and the preaching. But you know what makes them celebrate is when someone crosses from death into life from lostness into being found, from trying to earn favor with God just to rightly accepting it.
Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you even in this moment, Lord, this decision, this great reminder to all of us. Lord, I pray we would be more like Peter, certainly. We don't have, we're certainly not perfect. We get a lot of things wrong, but at the end of the day, Lord, our prayers echo the prayer of Jesus. Pray, Lord, not my will, but yours. I'm going to ask boldly and I'm going to ask frequently for good gifts. You delight in giving your kids good gifts, but sometimes things don't always work like I want them to, and I'm going to keep asking, but Lord, not my will, but your will be done. In my life, in my kids' lives, not my will, but your will. Father, I pray if there are people in this room, even this morning, that have never stepped across this line of faith and given their heart and life to you, surrendered their will, and said, Jesus, it's about you. I pray they do that this morning. Lord, I'm sure there's some of us in the room that we know you and we've walked with you. Yet this has been a tough season. And and if we're real honest, we're tempted even now to, to get you moving a little faster. To do your will our way. Lord, we repent of that. Lord, we ask that you'd give us the courage and the boldness to wait on you. Even when we're weary, when we're tired, when it doesn't feel like you're moving, we would wait on you. God, thank you for this ordinance of communion that we can be reminded that our salvation was not earned by anything that we did as we drink the juice we're reminded of your blood that was shed for us on the cross of Calvary when we take the bread we're reminded of your body that was broken for us so that we might not have to bear the wrath of God that's been stored up, but that you would take that on our behalf in exchange given us the gift of sonship with you. It's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray, amen. Would you come?